I think what motivated Henry beyond gaining Anne Boleyn as a wife, beyond having a living son, was being right. Hello and welcome to this week's Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. This week I chat with Tudor historian and novelist Stephen Virapen. We're going through the greatest hits and deal with some of the lesser known elements of Tudor history as well. So for the hits, we're talking about Henry VIII, was he a psychopath? Anne Boleyn, victim or politician? Lady Jane Grey, martyr or manipulated? And Mary Queen of Scots, bad choice in men? Or simply bad luck. For the lesser known part, we talk John Blank, one of the first black men in England, Christopher Marlowe as a Cambridge spy, and Arthur Dudley, was he the son of Elizabeth I? Now, one huge part of Tudor fiction that we haven't had time to discuss was Hilary Mantel. She died just over a week ago. The author of the Thomas Cromwell trilogy Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, and The Mirror and the Light transcended the historical fiction genre to become a great writer. I'm not sure how many of you have read her books, but they are wonderful, so I've put links in the show notes for you. I want to leave you with a quote of hers from Bring Up the Body's author's note. She wrote, I'm not claiming authority for my version. I'm making the reader a proposal, an offer. Well, listeners, what an offer it was, and one I certainly couldn't refuse, and I'm sure many of you haven't either. If you can... Please do subscribe, and thanks to those that have. And to those that have left a nice review, thank you. Without further ado, I'll hand you over to me talking to Stephen Virapen all about the Tudors. Stephen Virapen, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. Well, Stephen, it really is a pleasure because you're both a novelist and academic historian. You've got a number of um, historical works under your belt already, and and you've had some some great new novels that have been doing really well um, that have just come out in the last few months. And so that's what we're going to chat. And they're set in the Tudor period, so we're going to chat about um, your novels to start with, and then um, we're going to go into some Tudor... I've called it Tudor Greatest Hits. So we can run Thanks. through, yeah, some of the personalities and events that um, I'm, I'm, uh, I think are probably hopefully, hopefully most interested to our uh, listeners. Um, so we'll kick off. So of Blood, De- of Blood Descended is your novel that I think was published back in May. And I'm interested in this because it features a, a character who I think is the son of, an, uh, of a, I, d- I don't know, he's a... It, I'll let you explain it because you can explain it better than me. Um, but it features a hero who is based on a real person or is the son of a real person. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, John Blank is the real person who was a musician, a trumpeter, or we call it, a trumpet at uh, the court of Henry VII and into um, the reign of Henry VIII. And I became really interested in John when I read uh, Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors which um, was a kind of game changer for me when I read it. It's just a brilliant book. When I read it, I thought, there's a story there because this is a character and a a real person who must have led a really extraordinary life as one of the the only documented 
black people in early Tudor England. I, so I thought there's a story there, but I also had in the back of my head, I thought I can't, it's not a story for me today. I can't write John Blank because I don't have that experience. I was really conscious of that. But, um, my dad was actually Mauritian um, and my mom was Scottish, my mom was from Pollock in, in Glasgow. So I thought, well, what if he had a son? And history was kind of kind to me because John Blank, the historical figure, disappears from the records in about 1519, 1520, and we don't know what happened to him. We know he married at least once, because we have a, a record of that earlier on. But then he he's kind of fades away. So um, one of the things I suppose everyone's always trying to do is, well, think where are the gay areas, where are the, the people and the events that, that are invisible or aren't quite there. And I thought, well, I could give him a son, and if the son was mixed race, that I could write. So um, that was kind of the, the key and the lock for me for that story. I thought, it's a kind of nice feeling. It doesn't happen very often, actually, is when a character walks into your head and they're, they're formed, you know who they are, you know that person. Sometimes, um, I'll admit, sometimes when you write a, a character, you feel like you're writing a character, if that makes sense. Like you, you're conscious that I've constructed this person and I'm very consciously trying to bring them to life. So it's nice when one of them walks in and they are breathing and they, they feel alive. That's that's a good thing. Um, so that was how Anthony Blank came into being, um, kind of walked, walked into... In fact, I remember where I was. It was during the lockdown. It was during the very first lockdown and I was out running um, and he kind of walked he ran maybe into my head at that time. I find running is a great, great time where uh, I, I, I get ideas into my head when yeah. I go running. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And then it gives you an excuse to slow down if you've got an idea for me to put it into your phone, type it up. Um, so that was how that came about. And then it became a case of thinking, well, what's the story going to be about? You know, how, how am I going to sort of fit this character? who's the son of John Blank, and we know roughly, we don't know when he died or anything, but um, we know when John Blank was around, what age would that make a son that could be the protagonist of a story? Um, and of course, that took me into the, the early 1520s. And again, that was just a gift because it's Henry VIII before the sort of bloated tyrant that he became. And there was every year there's something going on. That's why I said that there's... Um, a sequel to come. Again, history's been kind to me because you can look at any year of the 1520s and there's some fantastic bit of spectacle that you can locate a story in. Um, so it became a, a very good place for a murder mystery. I think Henry's Court's always good for a murder mystery because everyone's a suspect. Everyone was horrible. Well, it's funny you, um, you should mention that because just before we joined, I was doing a bit of homework, which was a nice piece of homework because I was watching a bit of Wolf Hall again. Uh, which I know we'll get on to, um, but you're right. Everyone is scheming in mm. Henry VIII's court. So yeah. there must have been quite a rich number of storylines you could you could pick up on. Were there any based on reality or did you sort of create your well, own kind of plot? The key plot, the murder mystery, is um, entirely fictional. No, no one was murdered at, at that time in 1522 that I know of. Um, but the... Background of historical events is true, and I, I try to be as rigorous as possible going back to the records of it. It was the visit of the Emperor Charles V, who was the nephew of uh, 
Catherine of Aragon, Henry's then queen. He came to England and there was a, a great summer of celebrations and festivities and pageants and things. And again, I thought, well, why hell of a, a place to set a story alongside? So that's kind of running in the background. And where I tried to be rigorous was we do have records of what happened on what day, what day of the week, um, what, what were Henry and Charles doing at this time, what were doing at this time, what were doing at this time. So I tried to follow that timeline um, with these things going on as Anthony tries to solve the murder of one of Rosie's pet scholars who's been charged with putting on a mask of King Arthur and the Black Knight. And it's interesting that that, that Arthurian legend that you mentioned, which was a, um, I was speaking with Sarah Griswood and I know, now you've read read Sarah's book, um, the 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 Tudors uh, in love, which is a banger of a book. It's a belter. It, it is, it is, and uh, the Arthurian legend is is was a key component really to to the, the uh, and particularly Henry the Eighth, isn't that yes. right? Henry the Seventh and Henry the um, well, Henry's older brother was called Arthur, not by accident. Um, but yes, the the whole Arthurian legend became part of we i suppose i'm always hesitant to use the word propaganda because it seems a bit archaic or out of the period but it was propaganda there was a massive propaganda value for the tudors in linking themselves to arthur um which sounds crazy i suppose to us because arthur wasn't real in in the sense that the legends were actually they weren't actually true but there was no really clear line between history and myth in the period, and there was still a lot of building of foundational myths of nations. It happened in Scotland as well. There was a kind of almost historical belief that the Scots were descended from a princess of Egypt and things like this. Um, and that was history to people, so the, it wasn't just this is a, a kind of crazy myth. It was this is history, and we can trace it back, and we will trace it back. Um, and that is what the Tudors were really keen to do, partly because they came to the throne, Henry VII did in that um, bloody way and that with the sort of shaky claim there were people with better claims to the throne. Um, so how do you show that up? Well, if you're King Arthur's descendant, you have an indisputable right to the throne. So they really did try and prove that descent. That, that was true as well. They really did try and um, encourage people to believe this. So um, that's the, the and the murder. I think, yeah, as you mentioned, it, it involves the man who's seeking to r revive this sort of Arthurian legend, linking through to Henry VIII. Yes, um, but no spoilers. The, yes, I, I'll have to be careful what I say. Then, um, at the beginning of the story, Anthony has been called to the presence of Cardinal Wolsey, who's one of the most fun characters that I've ever written. It's, some characters you can, I think, afford to make a bit larger than life, and he's one of those characters. Um, in the beginning of the novel, he wants Anthony to play the Black Knight because he's mixed race um, in a pageant that he's uh, a mask that he's putting on for Henry VIII that celebrates this supposed descent from Arthur. And the historian that he's paying to prove it, to find documentary proof, because again, the Tudors were very keen digging up and dredging up documentary, ancient documentary proof of things. Uh, that scholar is found murdered and Anthony has to solve that crime. Uh, and of course, it being a murder mystery, other 
bodies pile up along the way. Great stuff. Now, I, I wanted to, we'll move on to your other novel that you've written um, that's come out a couple of months ago. But um, since we're in the reign of Henry VIII, we can't, uh, 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 and your other novel deals with, uh, we go f- um, forward in time and it's uh, in the reign of Elizabeth I. Yes. So, but with Henry VIII, I wanted to just pick your brains a bit on Henry VIII because, of course, probably the most famous uh, part of Henry VIII's reign was his relationship and rise and fall of the relationship with Anne Boleyn. And I wondered what your view of his, of Anne Boleyn is nowadays, because I'd say in the last 20 years, there's been a sort of a revision of the way women were treated in, in history up until the last 20 years um, was probably quite negative and, and Anne Boleyn had a kind of bad reputation. But that's not necessarily true in, in more recent um, historical understanding. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, I mean, I, I love I love a bit of Anne Boleyn. I can't resist anything about Anne Boleyn I, I will read. Um, she pops up in the novel, actually, as a kind of minor figure, because she was... One of the interesting things about her is it wasn't a case of Henry VIII in the, the later 1520s first laid eyes on Anne Boleyn and was in love. She was around for some years without there being this grand romance, without even a whisper of it. Henry seemed to, as far as we know, not show very much interest even though she was there. So it wasn't an overnight thing, whatever their relationship became. Um, but yes, her reputation's been, I suppose, a strange one because it's, it's been politicised in different ways for centuries. I suppose it was uncomfortable to people because of what Elizabeth became and was portrayed as this Protestant heroine and uh, warrior queen after the Armada. The circumstances of her mother's fall would have been uncomfortable for people. If you look at the Shakespeare and Fletcher play Henry VIII, um, it deals with the courtship of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and, and the, uh, the child of Catherine of Aragon and everything. And it, I think, very demurely cuts off, so excuse the pun, cuts off before the um, Boleyn marriage goes south. It so almost kind of ignores that. It climaxes with Elizabeth's birth as if that was the important thing. And it just doesn't want to talk about what we all know happened next. Um, But then she became portrayed by certain people, I suppose, as to some a a proto-Protestant martyr or something that was brought down by other people. But also, I think in the 20th century, the early part of it as a vixen and a kind of um, flirtatious character. Catherine of Aragon was the good, solid wife. And Anne Boleyn, and I saw this... won't name names in I saw someone call her on Twitter weeks ago, literally a few weeks ago, a home wrecker. <laughs> home wrecker. Was like, yeah, Henry VIII, I think, could wreck home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now I think she's viewed maybe more as a, and I don't know if it's right or not that she's viewed as a feminist. Um, because I certainly don't think Elizabeth I was what we would call a feminist, but Anne is, I think, viewed as a, as a kind of proto-feminist, people tend, I think, now to fall into two camps. They either think she's a victim, she was a victim of this sadistic husband, or she was a politician, which was kind of ahead of her time in being a female politician who just happened to, to lose the game. Um, those are, I think, the two 
sort of views of her that, that persist at the moment. And the truth is probably a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, because yeah. she she was a politician, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. And I think she um, was determined to play a political role as well. She she certainly wouldn't have been content to be the docile wife. And at the same time, though, she was, I guess this was um, because she was skilled politically. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why she um, she was pursued by Henry was, the, was that she, unlike her sister Mary she didn't immediately when when Henry took interest in her she didn't immediately sort of succumb to his um his flirtatious yes um, that's uh, and that's that's what I tend to believe is she she refused to become his mistress I think that's the generally accepted belief there's a series of love letters written between them that are undated so it's uh, I know various historians have tried to put them in different orders and things to, to create a narrative out of them and I think that is the the most convincing one is that Henry was the pursuer um, and she held off. My own personal belief is why she did, well, firstly, of course, why wouldn't you hold off? Why wouldn't you stay away? Um, but I think when she became probably convinced religiously, because I think she was a very religious woman, which is often overlooked, um, it's very likely that she decided or, or came to believe God has destined me then if, if, if this is what's happening, if the king is, won't give up and is pursuing me, God has deemed, uh, ordained me to become queen. So that's what I must go for. Because Henry was, was 40 or 40 odd when he, when he married uh, Anne Boleyn. Uh, and so she, she must have known that she was kind of going to have a long-term uh, marriage with him because you know, obviously we know that he married six times now, but obviously, yeah. uh, but, but they didn't. Uh, yes. Certainly Anne yeah. Boleyn didn't know that. Yeah. Um, sure she hoped that wouldn't be the case. But the, the relationship um, ultimately um, was a failure simply because she was unable to produce a male heir. I mean, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the reason, isn't it? I mean, it's certainly not because she had an affair with her brother and her. No, no, yes, no, no, no. I don't believe any of that. I know some people have argued that there was some um, basis in the accusations against her, but no, I think it was entirely politically motivated. But that's one of the big questions in that relationship: is why did it sort of fail so so suddenly within weeks, months of? of I mean, Henry weeks before was still trying to get her recognised as queen. Um, by ambassadors who had been resistant to do so. My own feeling well, only months was, before. Yeah, yeah, he was still trying to get her um, accepted, but then that could be because it's normal to distrust Henry VIII. It could be that he'd already planned or been planning to get rid of her, but he didn't want the world to know that. So, of course, to make himself look like the victim of this evil woman, he had to look as though. I've been I've been supporting her to the hill and look what she's done to me. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of mystery about why it failed. Was it just because she failed to produce a son at the beginning of um, or, or a living son at the beginning of 1536? I don't think that helped. But again, trying to work out the sort of motivations of Henry VIII is <laughs> always puzzling um, because I. I I fall into the camp and think he was a psychopath. He, he just, I know that's not, not everyone thinks that, but um, I think what motivated Henry beyond 
gaining Anne Boleyn as a wife beyond having a living son was being right. I think whatever Henry decided um, was right, everyone had to accept that that was right. That that was the scary thing about him. Is he he believed it. If he believed he was in the right, it wasn't enough that he believed it. Everyone else had to believe it. And if they didn't, they were an evil traitor. If they refused, if they were uncooperative. Um, as Thomas More said of him, be careful what he said to Cromwell, be careful what you put into Henry's head because you'll never pull it out again. Interesting. It's interesting what you say about um, Henry VIII and potential um, psychopathic tendencies hmm. because the, the death of Anne Boleyn, and I meant I, I discussed this briefly with Sarah Griswood because she had, had uh, because the the choice of a, a Calais sword, the best French swordsman, I think he was from Calais, mm. um, as her executioner, it was for Henry viewed as a rather, a, you know, yeah, rather a gentlemanly uh, Arthurian type uh, approach. But yes. it could easily be, like you say, evidence of a rather a strange personality that views that as, as a sort of tender yeah, um, yeah, and again, that had been planned in advance of her even being found guilty. The, the Cali swordsman had been arranged. So I think what the re I should explain just so I don't look like I'm being dogmatic. The reason I think Henry was a psychopath was the absolute coldness towards people that he had he had been close to, very close to. What and I don't just mean wives. I mean um, ministers, friends. Um, there was. He would give every display of affection towards these people for years and years and years. But then the minute they did anything that he thought was wrong, or rather the minute they even failed to put into effect a policy that he decided, or if a policy went south, it was their fault because they hadn't done it right, they were gone. And there was he, he would refuse to have anything to do with them. And it was everyone else's fault except his. And it was just a, a, a strange sort of coldness that... Um, you don't see, for example, in um, King James, James the, the sixth and first, he could be cold towards people like Raleigh, Walter Raleigh, if he didn't know them particularly well or had never created a relationship with them. But if he had a relationship with someone who was incredibly um, merciful to them, he, he would do everything he could to avoid them being executed, for example. Um, Elizabeth as well was very hesitant to have people executed um, she'd agonise over it. You never get any of that with Henry. <laughs> there was no agonising over things. It was just, when someone was gone, they were gone and forgotten. Cardinal Wolsey, Sir Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, all three were very close to him, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. all... and he did a repeatedly a very horrible thing as well, which was give these people hope and sort of show them that I, I, whatever the last meeting usually was with Wolsey, he'd... Um, give every sign of friendship again um but he knew what was he knew the person was going to be disgraced or be executed um with Cromwell he was sort of giving crumbs of hope and things so again it's just a, a cold cold fish do you think Henry VIII was a good king that's a oh that's a good question what makes a good king um do I I think he was extremely good at projecting kingship. Probably the best of the Tudors at projecting an image of kingship because what you, yes, he, he saw rebellions, but they weren't 
obviously successful. Um, but so many people seemed willing to buy into the, the living myth of Henry when he was alive, more so than, I mean, Elizabeth had a great sort of cult of personality around her, but she still, people still challenged her and people still argued against her and um, be critical of her without fear, whereas Henry seemed to really embody that. I mean, when people think of an English king, I think they, they think of Henry VIII. Um, so I think he was, in that sense, he was a good king. I know what you mean, because you, you, you are right. When you think of a certainly a, a king from the post-medieval period, it's Henry VIII one yeah. actually thinks of. But yeah, I, 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 the break with Rome, which we, mm. we haven't mentioned and won't have time to go into, uh, all his wives, it's, he, it's made him hugely famous. So mm. does that, in effect, make him a good king? Yeah, and I suppose if you think, because what a king is and should do changes over time. So in that period, what was a king supposed to do? They were supposed to provide, um, they were supposed to protect their people. Did he do that? They were supposed to defend the people's liberties. They were supposed to oversee justice. Uh, they were supposed to provide for the succession. Um, so again, it's a, a sort of next, uh, mm. next um, reviews, I think, coming in from there. <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's perfect for me. I, I'm very uh, I'm very comfortable with a uh, with a balanced, pragmatic view mm. of a of a monarch. So now, Tudor greatest hits. The next thing that I'm really interested in is so we have Edward the Sixth. Uh, he 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 succeeds Henry the Eighth. Edward the Sixth succeeds Henry the Eighth. He doesn't last long. He's a sickly child. Um, I'm skirting over his reign because what I'm most interested in is Lady Jane Grey, who was, I think, monarch for under a, just under a week. I should become famous as the 90s queen and she was never just crowned either. She never had a coronation. So, yeah. And I, I think this is a hugely tragic figure. Who, yes. who was manipulated by, I think, her father-in-law. And I wanted to ask you about this. Is, is that a fair way of viewing Lady Jane Grey? Well, I would say you can view her in almost any way you like. And the reason for that is the contemporary records of her life are somewhat lacking. So a lot of what we think we know about Lady Jane Grey comes from later sources. Um, the most famous one probably being the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which presents her as this um, Protestant martyr, Protestant figure, puts lots of words in her mouth and things. Um, but those words aren't recorded at the time. So, again, I spoke a bit earlier about grey areas and missing things. I think Jane Grey is a perfect example of that. You can either take the view that um, she was this Protestant heroine, she was deeply religious and everything. Um, you can take Fox's word um, if, if you so wish, or you can think, no, he was writing propaganda again. He was writing for a certain audience and for a certain reason, in which case you can take a completely different view of Jane Grey. Um, what do I think? I think she, I mean, there's all kinds of stories as well about abusive childhood that she had that was full of beatings and things which are, are undocumented in terms of her um, contemporary life. I think she was probably highly educated, we know that, she was well educated, and I think she probably did want to be queen. I think she probably, um, if 
she was even to a certain extent religious. She would have seen it as her duty to be queen if, if the alternative was uh, the counter-reformation of Mary. I think she would have seen it as her duty to, to become a Protestant queen. Whether she took that duty on willingly or embraced it, I don't know. And, and what was her... Into it. What, what was her claim? Because one would have thought Mary I being the daughter of Henry VIII. We can again put the blame for this on Henry VIII because um, technically um, only Edward was legitimate. And the reason is Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, Mary's mother, had been um, annulled. Henry had discounted that marriage. So legally, Mary had been bastardised. Elizabeth as well, before Anne Boleyn was killed, shortly before Henry had Cranmer, his Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and all the marriage, it never happened. So Elizabeth went overnight from being Princess Elizabeth to the Lady Elizabeth. So both Mary and Elizabeth, legally speaking, were bastards, they were illegitimate. If that was the case, then there was an argument for well, we can't have an illegitimate sovereign on the throne. We need to follow the legitimate line. And because Henry um, Henry had disbarred, well, he'd just cut out his elder sister Margaret's children. Um, I know we'll talk maybe about Mary Queen of Scots later. Um, so that left his younger sister Mary's line to come. But then in the dying days of Edward's reign, he had had his own device for the succession, he tried to sort of meddle with it as well, um, and he wanted uh, Jane Grey, and he, he wanted to discount both bastard sisters. So this became a bit of a legal mess, a tangle, because Henry had left acts of succession that put Mary and Elizabeth after Edward, even, but it didn't legitimise them. So Henry apparently he probably first saw Edward obviously living on and having legitimate children. But his act said, if that doesn't happen, my bastard daughters will be in the throne. Um, and then Edward tried to meddle with that as well. I think Edward was probably doing it to cut Mary out because he didn't want a counter-reformation. But if, in cutting out one bastard sister, you cut out both. So he cut Elizabeth out as well, and that left the, the, the way for um. Jane Grey, but it was a real mess because um, Mary, when she came to the throne, had Parliament restate that her parents' marriage was lawful. So she legitimated herself. She sort of unannulled the marriage and unbastardized herself. Funnily enough, Elizabeth never did that. Um, I think she, she floated the idea and she was talked out of it. She just let sleeping dogs lie. Parliament accepted her as queen, despite the fact that she was still legally speaking, an illegitimate child of a marriage that never happened or, or wasn't legal. Yeah, that, no, that's so, it's so interesting that um, Mary did legitimise her parents' marriage mm. or re-legitimise it, but Elizabeth didn't. That is so mm. interesting. And, and, and just finishing on Jane Grey, because she may not be, uh, her fate might not be familiar to um, all listeners, but her, the reason why I think I have so much sympathy for Jane Grey is probably the painting by Paul Delaroche, which I'll put a link in the show notes of, of her um, meeting her fate. But, but what, what exactly happened to result in her fate? What happened was um, 
Mary was supported primarily by, I think, East Anglian gentry. Mary, Mary had the support, so even though Jane That's was... The Duke of Norfolk? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, even though Jane was hastily proclaimed queen in um, London, she was quickly abandoned when it became clear that Mary actually had support. And I know there's been arguments here that this was almost a kind of almost Republican thing as where people were choosing the monarch, monarch a monarch had been claimed and people were choosing another one and putting them in. Um, I don't know if I go that far saying it was Republican, but Mary didn't gain her crown and immediately execute Jane Grey or anything. Um, she was actually sympathetic towards her. Mary's been castigated as Bloody Mary for, for a long time. And you still see that sometimes. I know it's, a lot of people have done a lot of work to try and reassess Mary's reign. So Mary didn't want to execute Jane Grey, but as long as she was alive, she could potentially be a focal point for resistance. And that's what happened. So rebellions, the Wyatt Rebellion, for example, um, rose up and again tried to replace Mary with Jane. So Mary was kind of, I guess, backed into a corner, really. Um, and and I, I don't think she, again, she didn't want to execute Jane Grey, but she was a, a dynastic rival. And not just a dynastic, not a toothless dynastic rival, but one that had people actually rising up um, in her favour. So I think that's that's why Jane met her fate. Again, it was, um, she was too dangerous, I suppose, to, to be able to live. A bit brutal, but... It certainly was. So moving on, we'll we'll skip over Mary's reign, her loss of Calais. Um, we won't go on about that too much. There's just one thing I would say about Mary, again, something very uh, defensive of Mary. A lot of the good things people think about Elizabeth, she kind of co-opted from Mary during her reign, but that was written out. So you think of Elizabeth as being very um, good with the people and having the common touch and um, being really keen to give justice to the poor and everything. Mary was doing that um, really keenly and it just sort of gets, it, it all gets given to Elizabeth. It was, Elizabeth was the breath of fresh air after this terrible, terrible, bloody Mary and it wasn't like that. Uh, well, that's, uh, yes, that, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was I was being very unfair to, to Mary. Um, so I'm glad you've, you've given her a bit of a a bit of a plus, but we'll, we'll, we'll go on to um, Elizabeth first and the fascination that I think you're certainly interested in, and we've seen a lot, there's been movies made about it. I went to an amazing play where it was, um, and, and the fascination between Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. And I went to this fantastic play where the actresses, they tossed a coin at the beginning of the play to decide who would play either Elizabeth or Mary. Yeah, I read about that. I remember reading about that play. It's wonderful. I, I guess the Hollywood version is is um, is is very good with uh, Margot Robbie, I think, and Saoirse Ronan. Yes, yeah, yeah. wonderful. Um, I really liked Margot Robbie in that film because it was an Elizabeth that I don't think I've ever seen. My favourite Elizabeth is Glenda Jackson. I like the Glenda Jackson. She's so powerful and commanding. But um, I liked Margot Robbie's so insecure Elizabeth because I think in a lot of ways Elizabeth was very insecure throughout her life her reign she was very insecure very worried about the future my, well my favourite Elizabeth is Miranda Richardson in, in oh, Queenie yes. <laughs> yeah. but um, 
but uh the 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 vulnerability then that, that elizabeth the first showed that's interesting that you th that sounds as though you think that's 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 quite accurate and Mary Queen of Scots is what was one person I guess who would have made her feel a bit vulnerable because Mary did have quite a strong claim to the throne didn't she yeah again and that's a dynastic claim Mary's claim again would have to bypass Henry VIII's will but again there were questions and there were lawyers through Elizabeth's reign really discussing this discussing the constitution and thinking well has she any right you know what does the law say? She was born an alien. Can the crown be inherited by a foreigner? Um, as it turns out, James proved yes, it could. But they were arguing that it couldn't for, for a while under English common law, as though the crown was a, a bit of common law property. Um, so Mary had the dynastic right, more so even than Jane Grey, because she was descended from Henry's elder sister, Margaret, who'd married um, James IV of Scotland. So, so that would have been Elizabeth's aunt, Oh, sorry. Uh, Mary was Elizabeth's cousin, so yes, it would have been Elizabeth's um, aunt. She yeah. married James the Fourth. They had together James the Fifth, and he had Mary Queen of Scots. Now, Mary, she she was married to the Dauphin of France. Is mm. that correct? Now, he rather inconveniently, certainly for Mary, died. Uh, yes, quite young. well, they had a, a little bit of time as king and queen because his father got a lance in the eyeball. <laughs> killed him um and then they reigned briefly but he was very sickly um francis francois uh, died of some sort of an ear infection and that left mary as the dowager queen of france and queen of scots in her own right um and then she went back to scotland obviously to to rule now this you've written a really interesting piece in our next issue of aspects of history about how mary queen of scots is a historical hero um, and there's no doubt she is because she's so hugely famous. Mm. But and and I I'm probably gonna I don't I, I might might get attacked for this. But she did make she didn't have a hugely brilliant um, choice in in her husbands. I mean it's you can't blame her for the Dauphin who died and she mm. didn't have a choice in that. But um, her second husband and third husbands were problematic characters, weren't they? Yeah, well, that is a diplomatic way. Of oh, yeah. Um, I, I'll defend her choice of Darnley on paper because Who he himself had a claim to the throne, didn't the English? And I think that's why he was a perfect choice because um, he had a claim to both thrones. He was uh, he had a claim to the Scottish throne and he had a claim to the English throne. Um, he was Mary's first cousin, so he was a perfect choice because. A lot of people say it would strengthen Mary's claim. I, I don't think that's entirely accurate in that it would maybe strengthen the claim of their child, which it did. But what it did was it allowed her to marry a rival, basically. And if you marry a rival and then dominate that rival, you've neutralised that rival. And that's what she tried to do. She married him and yet she refused to make him full king if you will she, she named him king um, by royal proclamation but uh, she kept putting off actually giving him the crown matrimonial it was called in scotland giving him right to uh, be a, a reigning king himself so she really married a rival and then tried to master that rival um i always think and i, I 
don't know if this idea's caught on yet. I think she married him as a kind of stud horse. She married him because having a child with it, well, marrying him, as I said, would neutralise her as a rival power as long as she could keep him dominated. But it also meant that their child would retain the Stuart name because he was Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. So there were all kinds of good reasons for marrying Darnley. And there weren't really that many um, good alternatives at that time. That's one of the funny things. People think Mary had all these wonderful suitors at because she's apparently very beautiful. But I know that the, the, Duke of, the late Duke of Hamilton wrote a book about Mary and he listed the tutors. He made a table with the uh, potential potential uh, suitors on it. And you can read it and it's like a crazy, went mad, um, violent psychopath. And yet Darley comes off quite well in comparison to the others. Um, so Darnley was a good choice on paper. The problem was really that she did try and continue to rule as Queen Regnant, even though she'd married and Darnley, to his, I suppose, to be fair at that time in history, was unwilling to accept that. So would, I suppose, quite naturally plot to, um, to rule in his own right as well. Um, and of course, he was very young. He was a kid. Darnley was a child. Yeah, he was 20 or both, something when he died, both, wasn't he? Yeah, they were both children to me now. <laughs> really yeah. <laughs> it, that's another thing to take into account. I, you had to grow up fast, I suppose. Mm. Now, Darnley very mysteriously um, mm. met his end after a fire in... Uh, you, you can explain this better. The house, the house in which Darnley was seen. Darnley was recovering from something, possibly syphilis, probably syphilis. Um, although I, I, it's always questionable as to when he would have uh, acquired it, possibly when he, he visited France in his even more extreme youth. Um, Darnley was recovering from that at a house called Kirkafield in Edinburgh. And Mary had been staying with him, but that night she went to a mosque at nearby Holyrood Palace. And at two in the morning, Edinburgh was shaken by an enormous explosion, which must have been terrifying. I mean, it'd be terrifying now. So you can imagine 500 years ago when an entire house explodes. Uh, and he was found not sort of torn or blown to pieces, but in the garden, smothered by someone along with his poor servant, who was also unfairly, his valet was also um, unceremoniously murdered. Um, and that's yet one of these big murder mysteries who did it. The prime suspect is then Mary's third husband. Yes, and that's, I think, the mistake. That's the husband that was the mistake, was Bothwell, um, who, again, in films and things, not the recent film. The recent film didn't fall into this trap, but certainly the old 70s movie, the, the one with Vanessa Redgrave and Glenda Jackson again, um, portrays Bothwell as sort of dashing Scotsman. Um, and I think that there was an old one, Mary of Scotland with Catherine Hepburn. And it, again, same thing. It's uh, Darnley's portrayed as this sort of the fate um, fool, a fop. And um, Bothwell's the man's man that, that she marries that is really on her side. I don't think that was the case at all. I think Bothwell was a horrible manipulator um, and her mistake was in marrying him, which again is something that has just exercised the pens of historians for years. Why did she do this? It was because it just handed her enemies 
um, all kinds of weapons. You can say, oh, she's just married this guy. He was the murderer. He probably was the murderer, he, or at least one of the murderers of Darnley. Um, and she marries him. That just makes her look complicit in the murder. Um, and why most, was Darnley murdered? <laughs> yeah, there's a, uh, he had a lot of enemies. Um, he, he did himself no favours, Darnley. The reason, or one of the reasons he was murdered is uh, he had joined a band of plotters to kill Mary's secretary, um, her secretary of French letters, Rizzio. And then he betrayed those plotters. Mary had talked him round sensibly. She, when that happened, um, she was heavily pregnant and Rizzio was dragged away and murdered in her presence. Darnley and his his new friends um, held her back. And she, that night, could immediately see what was happening. Even though she was pregnant, had just been through a, a horrific trauma, mm. she was able to grasp these people are, well, I can see they're dangerous. I can see my husband is in league with them. I need to divide and rule. So she convinced Darnley accurately that these people were not really his friends. They would turn on him as quickly as they turned on, on um, Rizzio. And she won Darnley to her side and they rode off and they, they took back control, actually. But obviously Darnley um, made a lot of enemies from that. He'd um, burnt a lot of bridges with people that he'd, he'd made friends with them. He'd signed bonds and things saying, we're in this together. We're getting rid of this foreigner Rizzio, this upstar Rizzio. Um, and then he betrayed them. And Mary had forgiven those men. She, she hated them because she, she, uh, Rizzo was a, a loyal friend to her. Um, but she forgave them in the December. And Darnley was then murdered in the February. <laughs> so <laughs> they came back to Scotland and Darnley didn't last particularly long. Now, now Bothwell, um, Mary, I think, has written in a letter. And I, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. <clears throat> but excuse me, <clears throat> um, Mary had written in a letter that Bothell had maybe raped her as well. Is, yes, is, this, the, the ravishment, and I, I think I suppose it depends on how you interpret the word ravish. Um, but I would take her saying, I think, yeah, what he probably did, and it's I, also because you want to believe victim, obviously, and that's what she claimed. Um, I think what probably happened is something that happened to Mary several times. Sometimes when something really traumatic happened, she instantly took control, as she did after the Ritzio murder. Other times she would fall into states of weeping and being. And the um, English ambassador Randolph is a good source because he, he was a bitch. She was a real bitch. He would always comment on her appearance. It's like, oh, she's she's fallen from her beauty, or she's looking particularly unbeautiful. Whenever she went into one of these black moods and fits of weeping, and what happened after Darnley's murder is she seems to have gone into some sort of shock. And I think that was genuine because Mary always had a very elevated view of monarchy. Even if Darnley had just been a sort of faux king, he was still royalty. Um, and I, so I, she wouldn't have countenanced murder, I don't believe, um, of, a, of a monarch. So I think she was really shaken by it. And I think she probably did believe it was aimed at her as well. She, she was uh, potentially a victim. And I think she fell into a really dark mood. Bothwell 
said that he could fix it. Bothwell um, said that he had the armed backing to regain control, which must have looked like it was slipping through her fingers because royalty had been attacked at the, at the head. Um, and I think that's probably why she married him. And the ravishment comes after she was um, kidnapped when she was moving um, from Stirling. Bothwell met her horses and took her off. What he did, we don't know. She claimed she was ravished, but again, it's, what does that mean? It's, um, but she, she, she became pregnant, so um, it was obviously not a solely political marriage. So again, so for centuries, people said, oh, they were in love then, they were in love. Other people have said he could have, he might have been a rapist. The word ravishment, though, is quite a strong word in Tudor mm -hmm. language, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it could be used in various ways. It could mean stealing off, taking by force or taking sexually by force. So again, um, Mary makes Mary, you know, this sort of, she is a hugely... Um, a flawed but but a very sympathetic figure uh, mm. um now when elizabeth gives her refuge because mary in the end is forced out yes uh, but uh, giving refuge is that a nice way of putting it um, <laughs> because mary left in the full expectation of elizabeth keeping up promises to um to help her to aid her to give her support um and what she met was imprisonment and a show trial and what was crazy about the trial and they weren't called trials she, Elizabeth wouldn't give them that sort of title it was, these are conferences we're just investigating what happened um, and Elizabeth played into the idea you have a stain over your head because your husband was blown up uh, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of this it's, it, and it won't matter what the outcome is and it, as it turns out there was no outcome um, Mary was neither declared guilty or innocent. Um, and she was, in, she was, I, I used the word refuge incorrectly. She was effectively moved from sort of castle to castle, wasn't she? Yes. But for so she many was kept years. under house arrest. Mm. Yeah, she was kept under house arrest for about 19 years, um, which was incredibly cruel, I suppose. I mean, it'd be cruel that you get less now for murder, I suppose, in some places. Um, and of course, Mary is often criticised for scheming for her freedom in various ways. But I think um, an argument one might make is, well, she should have just accepted this and lived the life of a private gentlewoman. But that would have been really anachronistic for the period. If you had a title or a claim to something in that period, you were expected to try and exercise it. It was... Um, they were all doing it, every uh, king and duke and all over Europe. If they had a, a claim to something, they would they would fight for it. So if you found yourself in prison, you would, um, as, as you believed unjustly, you would do what you could to get out of it. Well, I went to the British Library mm. uh, last year for a exhibition on... Yes, the Elizabeth and Mary exhibition. Exactly. Yeah. And it was fascinating to me because I hadn't quite appreciated the sheer number of plots that Elizabeth had been, um, been dealing with throughout her reign. Mm -hmm. And so one can see why she tried to keep Mary at arm's length, oh, yeah. but at the same time, 
she was um she was a a, a cousin as you say and 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 so was reluctant to to sort of end mary's life but which is yes. ultimately what she did yes uh, and i didn't mean to sound really negative about elizabeth and i was saying oh that sounded very pro mary but I'll, elizabeth didn't ask for mary to turn up on her doorstep um so she was in a quandary as well she didn't like, she didn't want to have to keep this woman arrested and housed and, and put up trials and control trials she didn't want to have to execute her in the end um so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a case of one, a good queen versus a bad queen. Neither of them were bad. Nuance, nuance, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting, but again, they've always been portrayed as rivals and, and one's good and one's bad. You see that for hundreds and hundreds of years again. Um, the Victorians, for some reason, really loved Mary. They, they really loved Mary as a really tragic um heroine and Elizabeth is this sinister sort of old woman that's how, how she was often portrayed in art and things like that and again that's just not fair on either of them. When Elizabeth did decide to sign Mary's death warrant I mean it was a bit of a stitch up wasn't it and Mary had she been involved in a plot uh, against Elizabeth or, or was it a stitch up and I think the answer to both those questions is probably yes. Um, it was a stitch up and she was... Uh, what I think happened is for years, the English government, and I, I don't necessarily mean Elizabeth, yeah, particularly her, her key ministers, absolutely wanted Mary dead. It wasn't enough. that They didn't want her confined. They didn't want her even in tight confinement or tighter confinement. They wanted her dead. Um, part of the reason is probably because Elizabeth was older. Elizabeth could have died at any moment and they didn't know what would happen if Mary was alive and Elizabeth suddenly died. So they wanted Mary dead, um, but they didn't want the possibility of Scotland retaliating to, to that death. Um, so what if you look at the timeline of events, in the early to mid-1580s, James, who had still been in Scotland, had been crowned king as a, as a baby when Mary left and was first imprisoned. He'd obviously grown older. Um, they were courting him and he needed money. He was James always needed money. <laughs> Even when, when he became king of England, he just needed more money. Um, he eventually signed a treaty with England, um, which was financially based. It was mutual support and all of that. And also... Um, about three grand a year, if you don't mind, because that's he, he judged. And, and Elizabeth kept him, she called it a pension. He always called it an annuity, his English annuity. Um, and she would either increase it or let it fall, depending on his behaviour, depending on what a good boy he was being. But once that was declared in 1585, 1586, uh, 1585, sorry, in 1586, um, Mary suddenly was... Um, falling into this, this trap. So what I think happened is they made sure, they bought Scotland in a sense, they, or at least they bought the acquiescence and the, the good behaviour of the Scottish king. And once that was done, um, Walsingham, Burley, they thought, right, we've settled Scotland. Now we can get rid of this bosom serpent, as, as Walsingham called her. So the stage was set, I think, to set up an entrapment, a 
called Honey Trap or something like that. And that's what they did. They, they um, sort of set in agent provocateurs to, to goad Mary into writing something that they could then use to uh, execute her. But of course, she had the legal argument. It didn't matter, obviously, but um, her argument was that she was a foreign royal. She wasn't under the jurisdiction of England, so how could how could she be a traitor to a country that she wasn't a subject of, which is correct, I suppose, but it didn't matter. Um, so yes, I think she, she probably did fall for writing letters that could be construed as treasonable, but she'd been... It came at that time and these letters had been allowed to pass back and forward because Walsingham and Cole were watching. They'd set this thing up and they were watching and just waiting for the right, what they considered proof positive to, to, to trump up an execution. Well, we now come to your other novel, your most recent one, which opens just after the execution of, of yes. um, Mary, Queen of Scots. the Queen, and, and this is called The Queen's Jewel. And what's the plot of this one? This is a, this was one of the more um, historically based plots in which um, I kind of took two historical real mysteries and smushed them together. Uh, the first one is Christopher Marlowe, the playwright Christopher Marlowe, who's always fun to write, incredibly fun to write. Um, we know that he disappeared from, um, from university for extended periods in his university days, obviously, but we don't know what he was doing. So this has long been dressed for um, writers of spy thrillers and things. He was in government business, and the reason that's assumed is because the Privy Council insisted that he still get his degree when the university tried to say, no, you keep, you keep running off. Um, so he was in some sort of government business, but we have no idea. We don't really know what. So that's something that was a grey area again. The other uh, mystery that I linked... Was he, was he, a, was he, he wasn't a Cambridge spy, was he? He might well have been a Cambridge was he, he was at Cambridge, was he? Yeah, yeah. He was the, oh, the first Cambridge spy. Brilliant. Yes, uh, he, he might well have been a spy. I've certainly taken the angle that he was, he was engaged in spying work. Um, although I've made it unofficial. It's one of the things you'll see in that. I'm kind of, I suppose it's like a young Christopher Marlowe chronicles that I'm writing with these ones, which is fun. It's, uh, rather than, I don't buy the idea that the government would rec recruit this raw kid into service. Um, and I don't think he would have been having cosy chats with Fra Francis Walsingham at the top of the pile immediately. I think he had to work up to that, prove himself. So that's the kind of angle I've taken with, with these stories and with the Queen's Jewel. The other strange 1586 mystery is the mystery of Arthur Dudley, um, who was a, a man that appeared in Spain in the summer of 1587. So, uh, so I was saying 1586, in 1587 after Mary's execution. Um, Arthur Dudley appeared in Spain in the summer of 1587 with a strange story that he was the illegitimate son of Elizabeth and Leicester, Elizabeth's great favourite. Whoever he was, he, he knew or had been told his stuff. He knew names, he knew dates, he knew events. Um, 
and then he disappears from the record. Okay, so <laughs> who was that? We only know about him from, from a, a series of letters sent back to England from the, the uh, people in Spain that were thinking, who is this guy? Should we send him on to King Philip? Is he legit? Is he telling the truth? Is he mad? Is he a spy? What is he? Um, so I took that mystery and played around with it as well. Um, it's, uh, I don't want to give too much away, I suppose. No, no, don't. This is Christopher Marlowe investigating rumours of something or someone called the Queen's Jewel. Lead someone a chase uh, throughout southern England of this. I have portrayed Arthur Dudley, I think, in a sympathetic way. There's a lot of division about who he was. Some people think he, did, he was a set up by the English government. They sent him with this cock and bull story about being the Queen's son so that he could spy on Spanish naval preparations for the Armada. I don't think that's very likely. Um, the reason I don't think it's likely is I, I can't believe that the English government would give someone that explosive a story because Elizabeth was constantly fighting claims and rumours that she had children. I can't imagine that they would play on one to um, to piss off the Spanish. That's so juicy, so juicy. Uh, well, look, this has been wonderful, Stephen. Thank you so much. Well, and thank one you thing very much. One thing we should um, we should mention is that the late Queen was descended directly from um, Mary Queen of Scots. Am I right about that? Yes, um, and it goes through the female line uh, because of obviously the Jacobites never won, so it never restored the, the male line of Stuarts. Um, but yes, uh, you can chase her in a fairly straight line to James's King James's and his daughter. Um, his daughter Elizabeth of Bohemia. So yeah, the Stuart name was lost because it obviously went to the female line. But um, yes, you can, so it's still there. Mary, so Mary Queen of Scots has the laugh, last laugh. One could say. Yes, although I think she would still be a bit disappointed that they're not Catholic. <laughs> I think that would be, <laughs> I think she'd be happier if they were Catholic. Great stuff. Well, Stephen, thanks so much. Uh, um, for the listeners, I'll put links in the show notes for, for uh, everything we've discussed. It's been really, uh, really interesting talking about the these like this extraordinary dynasty of the Tudors and Stuarts. Yeah, and Stuarts, yeah. Thanks very much, Ollie. That was great fun. Well, that was enjoyable. After the last two weeks on the 16th and 17th centuries, next week we'll be moving to World War II and the Cold War in my chat with the best-selling historian Ben McIntyre. He's written a new book on Colditz, the POW castle, but I also managed to sneak in some Cold War spy chat, so I do hope you can join me. Until then, thank you and good night.